Welcome to All Thought is Black Thought. My name is G. And I'm O. Just because the Democrats are bad for black people doesn't mean the Republicans are good for black people. You know, I really wish I could sit down and talk to Jaheim Hoagland, the formerly popular singer announced two days ago that he supports Trump. Sadly, he's not alone. In 2016, 14% of black male voters did like this brother and Kanye West and Isaiah Washington and some black male relatives of mine are doing. They fell for the okie doke and voted for Trump. And these folks are about to lead a lot of black people into making the same fatal error. Don't get me wrong here, of course, most black folk who vote are likely going to support Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And, of course, that's a problem in itself, since neither Joe Biden nor Kamala Harris deserve black people's support, either after, uh, after all the effort they and their Democratic and Republican colleagues have put into things like mass incarceration and the neoliberal reforms that have helped worsen conditions for black people and all poor people over the last 40 years. But that's Democrats and Republicans. The North American Free Trade Agreement, known as NAFTA, which Trump recently updated as the USMCA, has encouraged the flow of jobs and money away from black communities. And it was signed, sealed, and delivered by Republicans and Democrats. The 1994 crime bill that resulted in the mass incarceration of black men was pushed at the federal, state, and local levels by Republicans and Democrats, even black Democrats. And, you know, I just worry that social media posts like Jaheem's expressions of support for Trump could play into Trump's plan to pick off just enough black votes to deny the Democrats the election without requiring Trump to do anything for black people as a whole. Let's be clear, for Trump to get another term would just be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy for people caught up in the COVID quarantine, people behind bars trying not to spread the deadly disease. That would be a tragedy for the environment, poor people, women, black and indigenous people everywhere it would be a tragedy for the central park exonerated five and all the other black men and boys who are and could be any day now swept up by police who need to pin crimes on someone and any black person will do if anything high stakes moments like this and poorly conceived ideas like those jaheem expresses are part of why it's so urgent that we study black thought Black thought of necessity takes a long view of history and applies it to think about our own thinking. The ability to think about your own thinking, in other words, to think critically, is a necessary skill in any true democracy or any movement to create true democracy. The ability to think about your thinking helps prevent you from falling for the okie doke. Jaheem's Instagram post reflected how little critical thinking he has done and how dangerous it can be for him to have just a little bit of knowledge that has apparently been gathered from social media posts without any deeper investment on his part in the systematic study of the issues that are relevant. For example, Jaheem says that the Democrats are the white supremacist party. As we have spoken about on this podcast before, the Democratic Party openly advertised itself as a white man's party in opposition to the Republican Party, which, again, 100 years ago, was seen as the party of Lincoln, the party that had freed the slaves, that, that being, you know, us black people. Racist vigilante groups like the Red Shirts and the White Caps were essentially the armed wings of the Democratic Party. You ain't saying nothing by saying that, yeah, the Democrats are, uh, have historically been a racist party. And Jaheem is also accurate by pointing out that that, uh, that comes, you know, right up pretty close to the present. You know, the Dixiecrat ticket that he that he uh, talks about, which was a pro-segregationist, uh, white supremacist presidential slate within the Democratic Party that Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina formed to run for president in 1948. But there is also a lot more to consider, and failure to consider this could result in you falling for the okie doke. What is also true 
is that those very same Democrats, including Strom Thurmond, fled from the Democrat Party a few years later in 1964. And what party did they end up in? The modern Republican Party, which became the home to most of those with the same white segregationist uh, ideologies like Strom Thurmond and Barry Goldwater, two pro-segregation white supremacist presidential candidates. Richard Nixon's Southern strategy was to push this even further through the use of racial politics to pull working class and middle class white people out of the multiracial New Deal coalition. And when the the Dixiecrats fled the Democratic Party, they were fleeing the policies that the New Deal coalition had pushed. Policies like Social Security, disability insurance, unemployment insurance, aid to families with dependent children, Medicare and Medicaid, Fair Housing Act, and various civil rights and voting rights laws. Pretty much all these politicians are racist, white supremacists, and anti-black to some degree. But that's because everyone is. But regarding your government officials, people who control many conditions about your life, only some of them are willing to speak up for white supremacists who commit terror act, uh, terror attacks on you know, protests for black lives, right? Only some of them are quoted by a white supremacist in the manifesto written just before he murders 23 people in El Paso. Only some of them openly hire white nationalists who engineer a policy of separating children from their parents with no records kept so that that separation often becomes a permanent one. The white working class was seduced in supporting, into supporting the Republican Party so that they could oppose the civil rights reforms of the 1960s and 1970s that benefited black people. Nixon's plan worked culminating in the ascension of Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. And from there, things got a lot worse for black people, especially with the anti-black law and order politics of local, state, and national governments. And as more black people joined the Democratic Party, more white people fled to the Republican Party. The same party of people who don't want to do anything for black people do want to make it look like they'll do just enough for black people to snatch a few crucial votes from the Democrats in key states. Jahim, don't expect them to, to see them standing up for Black Lives Matter against the police. They will side with the police every single time. And these same Trump-loving Republicans will even introduce bills saying it's okay for people to run over Black Lives Matter protesters in the streets, as Republicans in Florida, North Carolina, North Dakota, and other states did. They will favor laws that disenfranchise felons for life. They will delay resources needed to respond to COVID. And they will dispute the established scientific consensus on how to address things from COVID to global climate destabilization, all things that disproportionately affect Black and Indigenous people. Does Shahim know that we can thank neoliberal presidents like Reagan, the Bushes, Clinton, Obama, and Trump for gutting protections for the environment, union bargaining rights, and overall worsening of the real wages of the average U.S. worker, the expansion of wars that increase misery the world over from Venezuela to South Africa to Congo? Has he considered that thinking about party lines is a distraction, that it is much more important to think about the ideologies dominant among the political class? If we are successful... And stopping Trump from killing us all with COVID and other cruelty, we will still have to contend with the ideologies that oppress black people, indigenous people, and poor people. It's not about the party. It's not about the politicians. But in order to understand this, one has to know, one has to somehow have avoided or defeated the miseducation trap that neoliberal reforms of the past 40 years have forced upon black people, indigenous people, and poor people. 
and defeating the limitations of the deliberate and systematic miseducation of black people means taking black public figures like Jahim and Kanye to task for making themselves tools of the white supremacist vanguard party and fools for all of history to sneer at. So what's happening, brother O? <laughs> man, I'm uh, I can't call it, man. How you doing? Man, I'm my head is spinning right now. <laughs> yeah. This this crazy world has got me uh in a constant state of losing my equilibrium. Yeah, it's a, it's a whiplash, man. It's yeah. like a whiplash, you know. Yeah. One thing to the next thing to the next thing. And the and the and the, the cold part is you pretty much expected you know, it's not like we expected better from the cast of characters that we're faced with. But, right. you know, the name of the game is uh, basically shock and awe and uh, let them die. That's the part that's like, I think uh, I think if it wasn't for uh, the let them die part being so visceral right now, I think the last I heard there was 176,000 people did. It might be, you know, less jarring. But then, you know, like yesterday I took a cab somewhere and this the driver was telling me how he thought maybe they were bumping the numbers up or they were, uh, you know, as if there's some conspiracy about the numbers of deaths. It just makes me think, like, how much, you know, people are deceived about the world around them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, like we're saying, this whole sort of constantly shifting instability. Uh, the only reason that I sort of have uh, any sort of stability around it is because I've been paying attention for a while now, and I keep seeing the same patterns come up over and over again, except that we now have Trump, who literally is just letting them die. Just when you thought it had got to one point, it got worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even yeah. want to ask how much worse. Yeah, could get exactly, you know, exactly. Long, long way down. So this week we had the the Democratic National Convention, and I guess uh, or the Republicans are going uh, this this coming week here. Yeah, they start uh, tomorrow, I think. Or oh, okay. I think that I think they start tomorrow. Yeah. So okay. get, get ready to get hit with a <laughs> with a whole nother barrage of things that don't make sense, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like watching your television and this person's saying one thing, but you know an entirely different thing is happening. It's just like watching Kamala and Joe standing next to each other and they're telling you look, we're here to save you. But then, you know, uh, it's like a science fiction movie where they've got on some sort of a special suit. And right below it, you know, they're prison wardens and police. Like for those mm -hmm. of us who put on our x-ray glasses, we see the badges, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It ain't hard to see. <laughs> the x-ray glasses are the ones you find at the bottom of a box of uh, Cracker Jack. Yes, yes, they're not military grade at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, and you know, everybody could have the glasses, 
but they're just right. not willing to put them on. That's the cold part yes. about it, right? Yes, but it is. Like all this stuff is knowable, but they're not willing to put them on. And so it leaves mm-hmm. someone like me thinking, someone who doesn't believe in the electoral system, thinking, yeah. but damn, that's Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. you know. Uh, like I'm waiting, I'm waiting for him to do his own version of Tiananmen Square, you know, where, yes. they, where they killed the protesters in China. They just turned out the lights and massacred and imprisoned, you know, thousands of people. Uh, mm-hmm. When China was going, when there was a pro-democracy movement going on in China, they made that move, you know, and we haven't heard anything since. Uh, right. From, you know, right now it's happening in Hong Kong. But in China mainland, there's, you know, the, there are putting everybody in prison. And that's one of Trump's heroes. He thinks that that's a great leader of his country. So, Oh, yeah, Xi, Xi Jinping. Yes, so get ready, you know, because uh, that w- that's the only reason I'm voting against Trump. You know, because yeah. not yeah. that I believe that Kamala and Joe <laughs> are my saviors. You know, I'm looking at them. And I'm only seeing one hand, so I got to figure in the other hand is a uh, Uzi. Let me back up for a minute. What uh, uh, about that? Uh, you said Tiananmen Square, where was that was a massacre that happened in uh, 1989. Yes. So what was uh, happening? There was a pro-democracy movement going on in China at that point. I think Dong Xiaoping was the uh, premier at that point, the leader of China. But the protesters had been uh, gathering in Tiananmen Square for an extended period of time. And they were, you know, there was, I I really can't remember what all of the demands were, but it was, you know, it was around human rights and uh, democratic rights. You know, they had gathered in this particular significant square there. Uh, Well, there had been one moment that was on television people may have seen. But there was a there's an image of that single protester standing in front of the tank and not moving as the tanks rolled in toward Square. Uh, And and so they broadcast that, uh, um, you know, all the global media at that time. And um, I remember that eventually I think the either the tank just stopped or backed up, but it wouldn't roll over them. Right. Yeah and, yeah, and so it was like the moment, and I remember all the uh, like the U.S. mainstream media was uh, like really sort of excited about the pro democracy movement that was happening. You could have all the commentators saying, "Look how brave that individual was," and you know he's standing up for democracy. And then a few nights later, you know the cameras had been trained on Tiananmen Square, and the lights went out. And all you could see is sort of uh, flashes of light, like gunfire and loud popping noises. And then that was the end of it. The people that all those thousands of people that had been in that square were gone. And the Chinese government uh, went ahead and continued with its plans in terms of reshaping the economy and their political system. Nothing really changed except they became a superpower in terms of capitalism. So that was that was in 1989 and that that signal a way one way that that uh, that the repressive you know governments 
solve the problem, so to speak, quote unquote, to put it to put it really, you know, in a bad way, you know, to solve the problem of pro democracy movements, movements that are trying to, you know, speak up for reforms in things like like police abuse of people, like um, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things you know, like how people's standards <laughs> of living and things like that, and their their ability to choose their own destiny and things like that. Those are all very similar to some of the things that uh, that black people are out in the streets calling for, like right now. Yes, yes, very much the same thing. I mean, there's a definite parallel between what was going on in China in 89 and what you've seen in recent months after George Floyd's uh, murder. Uh, it was very, very similar. There was a, they, that was a, democracy movement there and this is a democracy movement here you know the yeah. idea of self-rule has to be done through democratic means you you know there's no one that gets to tell me uh what my freedom means if i'm not harming someone else you know mm -hmm. and and i should have a say on how the society works you know i should be able to have a voice in the government so you know those are that is the exact same desires that were expressed in Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. The people marching in the streets were here. You know, people don't want uh, policing to be a, uh, you know, a license to kill for people that wear police uniforms. Right. You know, who wants to live mm -hmm. in a system like that? You know, so. Yeah. yeah so no, basically, black people are already living in a police state have been for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, but in the last 40 years or so, uh, the fact that the media doesn't report some of the things that you see if you lived in a place like Richmond, uh, West or East Oakland, but there were neighborhoods in Richmond where they would bring out a command center. These are the more black neighborhoods in Richmond below 23rd Avenue, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they bring out one of those mobile command centers, and then the police would just come do a sweep, and there might be three, four hundred people that go to jail that day from from every sort of minor crime, you know. And you know, maybe they had a warrant for an unpaid ticket or something, and they put them in jail. I mean, can you imagine them doing that in white neighborhoods? It just that you know that they would never do that, and it would be called it would called police state tactics because that's the way it's portrayed uh, in the media for the last several decades now. And they'll reference somewhere like uh, Russia or China. And yet it's been happening to us, you know, for a very long time. I mean, 40 years ago was Reagan. So it's right. really been going on, you know, uh, after civil rights. So after black people actually had full citizenship rights because until the various civil rights act we didn't have that and so you know mm -hmm. after we, we've become fully citizens they've been engaged in police state practices with us the entire time the black black people in america you know supposedly have uh, full citizenship rights according to the law after you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965, legally, the loopholes technically should have been closed. Right. And, 
but that's right at the same time as these massive forms of repression are starting. Like, for example, you know, Watts Rebellion is met by Chief, uh, Chief, uh, was that Gates? Uh, or was it the dude before him? I think it was Parker, actually. Yeah, William Parker. Parker yeah, the one they named the police center after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, and here's the one who started yeah. the original SWAT, the original yeah. special weapons uh, and, and tactics uh, SWAT teams. Uh, right. and now, you know, in every police department and they use these military gear and stuff like that. Yeah. And they act like they're operators and stuff like that. Yeah, that was the initial militarization right then. You know, mm-hmm. in L.A., mm-hmm. I mean, if you that's the thing that's great about the Internet is anybody who listens to this and can read can go on the Internet using their phone or whatever and look up what we're saying here. You know, yeah. so if you, if you know that if you check the history of LAPD and the history of SWAT and the militarization of the police, that's the moment yeah. that it happened. It starts yeah. right then. And then it becomes popular around the country. And now you have like multiple uh, tactical units within police departments and sometimes within the same department. So they can, you know, they, they'll have one unit that's an anti-terror unit. They'll have another unit that does uh, drug enforcement work for the same municipality. And then you'll have another unit that's just for uh, normal violence and hostage situation. But you have all of these multiple uh, military, basically small military units within local police departments. But it all starts back uh, right then. And that was in part to uh, address the Black Panther and Black liberation. And people, like you said, people can look all this up. There's there's stuff on online, in particular the work of um, Mike uh, Mike Davis. Yeah, yeah. Mike Davis uh, wrote that book, City of Quartz. He's a, an LA area uh, geographer, and he writes a lot about this in, in lots of different venues. But his book is called City of Quartz, and that that video uh, that he did with a uh, Claybone Sloan. Uh, bastards of the party yeah. really makes the connection between the, the the you know the rise of the Black Panthers and the intensification of police militarized mil, you know militarized police tactics that you know uh, basically were mirrored everywhere else in the world you know in terms of counterinsurgency and things like that unaccountable police because they're basically seeing themselves now as military you know there's yeah. that white dude. Um, Bo of the fifth column on uh, on YouTube, he's got quite a following now, and he says that he used to actually train police, and he said the moment he stopped uh, training them in terms of these tactics of uh, of you know special operations, you know people, uh, in ter- when, when he stopped training a group of police in, uh, in in a classroom, and one of them said, okay, you know you can show us how to do this uh, this stuff. Uh, because and nobody will hold us accountable, basically, because we're the ones who write the reports. Wow! And, <laughs> they write. Yeah, and, they say that again, just for emphasis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, you know, he he said that the, the 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 last time that he coached police in the use of special operations tactics was when a group of police that he was teaching in a classroom said to him, you know, you can show us how to do whatever. And we'll never be held accountable, basically. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically yeah. we'll never be held accountable because we're the ones who write the reports. Yeah, that's saying a lot, isn't it? 
<laughs> in, other, in other words, in other words, we write the law, basically. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because if you can, if you can determine when the use, when the when the legal application of lethal force or torture or any of these other tactics that they that they learn that are part of the militarization of the police, then basically that in certain geographies, certain zones, there is no law. It's wide the open. Law, yeah, it's wide yeah, open. The law, unaccountable to anybody. It's it's the law of war, which is no law at all. Right. Exactly. And as war yeah. evolves, they develop, you know, more and more technologies and tactics that uh, even eliminate the possibility of uh, any sort of a uh, dispute about the tactics because they can do it in clandestine ways. And that goes that goes hand in hand, like you're saying, the rise of the Black Panther Party in the nineteen in the late 1960s, and really the the rise of other Black uh, radical movements, which really are human rights movements. They're, yes. they're human rights movements. They're they're pushing for democracy. Um, they're pushing for you know the needs of community uh, members who are who are most marginalized, most neglected, most uh, prone to die premature deaths. You know, in, in circumstances that nobody else faces in the most prosperous nation in the world, and right. they're rising up to say, you know, we we demand uh, our human rights our basic human rights with this form of militarized repression that like you're saying mirrors pretty well the thing that happens 20 years later when uh you know uh Deng Xiaoping and and the Chinese uh Communist Party basically massacre people at Tiananmen Square in 1989 uh, opposing a pro-democracy movement right and right at the moment when the U.S. decides to give them a most favored nation status they go and engage in one of their most repressive uh, actions that is widely known in the modern history. You know, so so that parallel between, uh, you know, repressive regimes and U.S. endorsement of it, that's a really important moment that you can look at. And like, like I was saying earlier, you can go back and research this and look at the way that the U.S. government responded to it, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's really, so really important, especially in connection to electoral politics and what are you actually voting for when you vote. I, I have not voted for a major party candidate uh, since I was tricked into voting for Clinton in 1996. Um, right. I was um, and young and everything like that back then and everything like that. And But as soon as I like got some sense about me, started doing a little research, I was like, hey, why are there only two parties? Hey, right. what's what's going on with this policy that they call uh, NAFTA or that they call, you know, free trade or trade, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, global trade and stuff like that? Like, and, and why is nobody critical of the effects that this is having on people, you know, around us? Right, you know? right. I swore yeah. I'd never vote for a major party candidate again, but now I'm uh, I'm feeling trapped. G. Yeah, you and me both, you know. And I I have no illusion that voting for Biden saves us, right? I right. just see voting for Biden as a speed bump on the road to um, authoritarianism, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's really. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a bump of the road that may give 
people a chance to really examine their position, their place in the world. It gives them a chance to, while the internet is still free and available, to learn the history, not even the, you know, the, you know, the history of the last 200 some years, no, the history of the last 60 years, which is a relatively short time in a nation's history, learn what that history is in relation to yourself as a black person, a brown person, a poor person. Because once you understand that, then voting really does, you know, really pretty much becomes a useless endeavor for the average person. Unless you, you know, unless you and really what controls the world is has nothing to do with our votes, you know, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but and- but we do need a speed bump because of the threat. I have trouble believing that the Democrats, any any Democrat I've ever seen, would have handled the coronavirus crisis in this inept way. Exactly. I agree. And not because their motivation <laughs> is about the people that are dying or getting sick. The, their motivation would because, be because they have an economy that can't function if you handle it in such an inept way. And yet yeah. they also know rhetorically that they have to pose it in a way that says they're trying to take care of people. You know, right. but, but because of my understanding the way I see how things work, I don't believe that they care any more than Trump cares, except that they know they can't have a world of people just, you know, you can't have a 176,000 people die and act like everything is going to be all right. They, they're, right. they're not that inelegant in their argument. Trump's argument is uh, such a poorly organized concept that you know he's he's stupid enough to say it in the way that he does and so you know on the one hand i kind of i understand the appeal of him in a certain way because he does he is saying what they actually do quite often Mm -hmm. except you know he's saying yeah this is what the u.s government does yes the u.s government isn't for you but the problem is he's not for us either you know, so, right. yeah. you know, he, 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 he's, he's trying to he's trying to say that the government under the Democrats wasn't for us as if the government under Republicans was for us. And it hasn't been. And him only being a recent convert to the Republican Party just shows you how cynical he is, you know, because when he was a Democrat, he was calling for those brothers uh, in the uh, Central Park 12 to be killed even though somebody else confessed to the crime. He never retracted that. No. And he discriminated against black people in housing, just like his daddy did. Yes. He's, of course, said all kinds of things and, and done all kinds of things that are definitely put him in line with the racist, uh, you know, white supremacists right. like uh, neo It's not that the Democrats, again, it's not that the, the, the Democrats aren't white supremacists. Right. Democrats are white supremacists, but the Republicans at this point in time are a leading vanguard, cutting edge sort of party in terms of the type of white supremacy that they are pushing toward. And that is authoritarianism. uh, That's, uh, you know, uh, let people die or make people die. Right. You know, and and it's it's in in an accelerated way. 
I, I like to think of it in terms of the the choice that we we faced on the slave ships between um you know the the the, the slave ship captain some of them you know would would pack you loose in there you'd, you'd have a little room to go around and breathe while you were in your chains and while you 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 know you had to you know puke on yourself and you know and 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 go to the bathroom right where you were lying and everything like that right but some of the some of the slave ship captains you know they believed in packing you in there tight where you didn't have no room to wiggle you didn't have no room to move you know didn't have you know everything that you did was going to affect somebody else and it was you know basically a lot higher death rates and a lot faster death rate, sure. you know, but the thing about the slave ship captains, whether they were loose pack or tight pack captains, they were both heading in the same direction. Yeah. They were both yeah. taking us to the same port to be sold as slaves or killed. When you, you, when know? you got off the ship, either way, you were going to be dealing with the same thing. I'd rather be able to wiggle around a little bit <laughs> and breathe so that maybe I could talk to these brothers so that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, uh, uh, puking on him as much or he's not puking on me so we can have a conversation and say hey what if we uh, get together next time they bring us up on deck and we try to take this motherfucker over or, or worse come to worse we just burn this whole bitch thank down. you thank you like that scene from American Gods that I <laughs> that I like so much <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Jones, you talk about Orlando Jones? Yeah, Orlando Jones scene, uh, a Nazi, I think is how you pronounce the character's name. And, yeah. Spider, yeah. <laughs> and he's telling them, he's telling them what awaits them in the future in America. And, <laughs> and, then, he, and then he looks at the one slave and says, you mad, huh? <laughs> and, and what develops after that is the they do take over this ship and the ship does burn down if you really take just a little bit of time and do a little bit of research there's nothing that tells you that you know a hundred years from now they won't be doing the same exact thing that they were doing in 1955 if they can get away with right. it, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and who knows what they'll do if technologies that are en route to, to uh, inter being introduced uh, eliminates the needs for human participation. Who knows, mm -hmm. who knows what condition we will be living in if we, you know, if that time comes. Or not we necessarily, but uh, future generations of us, you know, my great, great, great grandchildren. I don't want to even imagine what that world would be. You're right. <laughs> you know, if you get on a loose pack ship, you know, the same question arises. How do we burn this motherfucker down? If you just look at how the different governors are handling this stuff, right, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, New York, you know, uh, Governor and the and the the mayor of New York City, you know, I mean, uh, they they have had this this you know under control to some degree. I don't know what the numbers are doing because the numbers fluctuate all the time, and you know the weather patterns change and different things change stuff like that. But in general, it's been you know these states uh, and cities where Democrats are in charge right now. The the overall philosophy is still you know, that neoliberal capitalism, right. you know, which, which was the thing that resulted in the cutting of things like the healthcare infrastructure, 
you know, that existed after the 1960s and everything like that. So that's been cut on the watch of the Democrats. But in general, they will take a more active approach. They will not deny what the science is telling. And you look at the Republican states, especially the Republican states in the South, where there's a whole lot of black people, but it's still white Republicans in charge. Or you look at the West uh, and the, you know, the Midwest and the West, where there's, um, you know, Republicans in charge uh, and, and or I should say Southwest and, and uh, you know, yeah, where there's Republican governors in charge and there's a lot of Native American, you know, indigenous. Yeah, like, uh, people like living Ar- in those states. Arizona, for instance, in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they, you know, they are denying the science. They're, the, the governors themselves are going around without masks. Um, you know, there's even police in, in, uh, in Florida, I think, who said he, uh, he, I don't know if it's a policy or if it's a law or what, but he, has, he refuses to allow uh, people working for his department to wear a mask when they're talking in the office. Wow. Yeah, he won't even allow it. To work. So that's that's straight up denial what's that, of the reality. What's that congressman's name that is not allowing? He wouldn't allow his staff to wear masks in the office, and he ended up got, getting the virus. I don't know what his condition is right now. You know, but he. Oh yeah, Gomert. Yeah, Gomert, thank you. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So Louis Louis Gomert, Louis Gomert. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> Yeah, he's a Texas. Yeah. Oh, where's he from? Texas. Yeah, yeah. So he's really mm-hmm. not only is he anti-science, he's militant anti-science. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like they're it feels like they're a death cult, right? That you know the ways that they yeah. talk about you know the need to keep the economy going even if people have to die uh, when the yeah. when there's alternative means around the world. But really, they're talking about uh, black and brown people in particular dying and poor white people. So it ends up sort of being a eugenics for the world that they want to create, you know? (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so they, yes, you know, you you have that choice. But then, you know, on the other hand, you have Democrats that have passed legislation that lets you continue to breathe. But I wouldn't call uh, the circumstances that they leave us in life, right? Uh, you have, right. It's, it's, you know, uh, like uh, the term that I've heard uh, uh, philosophers use, bare life, you know, where you're alive, but just barely, you know. And when you look at the way black people are living, uh, some of the conditions they live in, in this wealthiest country in the world, uh, they're barely living, you know, Flint, for example, you know, Flint, yep. you know, so, yeah, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, barely living and being dead is a significant difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so that's, I mean, I, I get why people wouldn't want to vote and, mm-hmm. you know, there's, Nothing really desirable about Kamala Harris or Joe Biden to me, except the fact that they don't seem to be talking about openly uh, encouraging a death cult to be further expanded. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think there's been a requirement in California basically saying that these uh, ride sharing companies are going to have to. I think they figure in a few years they're going to have driverless cars anyway. And then what are all those people going to do? Right. And 
these are these are companies that have come into into prominence on the watch of both of these parties. You know, they, they're all uh, favoring the um, you know the ride sharing and the and you know the, the kind of gig economy right. type uh, treat treat the people driving for them as employees rather than the so-called you know private contractors that they are yeah, now. Yeah. And Lyft is just talking about well, we're just going to shut down them. We're not gonna we're not even going to operate in the state of California. Right. You know that that leaves all workers. All workers are precarious. That you know un, under this type of economic uh, system. You know we we don't we we can't rely on uh, unions anymore because they're they're crushing the unions. They're passing these so-called right to work laws that say that you can benefit from the fight that the union has for you, but you don't have to be a member of the union. Oh, that's uh, all of that. Yeah, this is they crush the unions. They're not crushing them. Uh, the few unions yeah. that exist that are worth anything are few and far between. You know, they've pretty much, they eliminated any sort of real presence in the construction industry as carpenters unions go, at least in residential construction. There, I don't think there is a union element to the residential construction industry in the United States. And when you think about of all the participation in building that goes on, the by and large residential construction is the majority of the work. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah. and the fact that carpenters are non-union, uh, really, I don't think there's really any sort of a trade union presence. And I lived in the Bay area for a long time, which is one of the most unionized areas in the country. And by the time I was out of the carpenters, union, it, you know, it had lost its presence in residential construction entirely. So they they got that, you know, they got they got unions crushed. And I, and I, I, you know, I keep thinking back to, you know, like you're saying, like Reagan, you know, like Reagan, uh, first thing he did when he got into office. And keep in mind, Reagan was the first president of the United States who was himself a member of a union. Yes. You know, no, no previous <laughs> president had been part of unions. Right, you know? right. The first one to have been. Uh, a, a union member, he was a, in the Screen Actors Guild, and he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, you know, uh, in, in Hollywood, the union for, for film actors. And yet the first thing he does when he gets into office is he crushes the uh, the, the strike uh, of the air traffic controllers. Right. To the point now where the industry is relying on people who are falling asleep, uh, who, are, who are not, you know, you know the, the, the conditions have deteriorated as the unions have been been crushed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I remember the air traffic controller strike. It went on for a long time. And then right you're right. As soon as he had got into office, it was one of the uh sort of criticisms of uh Jimmy Carter that that strike had went on for as long as it had. And Reagan promised once he was elected he was gonna get you know, he was gonna take care of it and he did. You know, and mm -hmm. so they it's been going on for a minute and, you know, they can do a lot in 40 years and Democrats have dirty hands on it just as much as Republicans. And then on top of it, if you're a black person, uh, you, yeah. you really weren't represented by any of these unions anyway, if you were allowed to be in the union. I happened to be in the carpenters union, but I tell you, it's, you know, it was some really blatant, straight-up racism the whole time that I worked as a carpenter. And then they've had uh, 
there was times when I knew certain union halls had consent decrees and they refused to abide by the consent decree. And just to explain a consent decree is what happens when through the legal process, a judge orders a certain actions to be taken by a party. In this case, it had violated uh, some sort of a civil rights or anti-discrimination policy. And so they have specific directives on their hiring processes, affirmatively making sure that there's a certain percentage of Black people on a particular construction site. They had that mm-hmm. for they had that for Richmond uh, for a local uh, in the Richmond area in Elsa Branding back in the day local six forty two, and that mm-hmm. that business agent would not even abide by the consent decree. He was you know he was so militantly racist. So you know not that I'm against unions. I think unions are like the one of the few means that workers have to protect themselves in the workplace. But even then, you know we don't we you know, um, by and large, we rarely got a lot of benefit from it, you know, with the, with the exception of the, uh, automotive industry, you know, otherwise black people, you know, and manufacturing black people didn't really benefit from, uh, the trade union movement because they hated us as well. You know, George Meany, black people, the former head of the AFL CIO back in the day, you know, he, he said a bunch of racist stuff. Like if you look and you like, you know, at my age at 62, I remember a lot of these things, you know? And so it's, it's memory and plus part of my own research and education that I know these things, but all you, all it takes is a little bit of research. If people sort of hip you to what's going on, you can find out uh, the roots of the problem and why I'm so cynical about the voting process. You know, Mm -hmm. when you look at the role of the AFL-CIO in the Democratic Party and and their influence on the government, it's huge, Mm -hmm. right? It's a significant influence. And the fact that they would, you know, like the Carpenters Union in New York just straight up wouldn't hire black people to go on uh, union jobs. That union, all the locals in the New York area, you know, and during the, up through the 1980s, they were straight up not hiring black people out of the union hall. So we, you know, if we were going to work in the trade, we'd have to work, you know, at a subpar, substandard situation. But so, and the Democratic Party knew the attitudes of someone like a George Meany or the attitudes of the, uh, you know, the Brotherhood of Car- United Brotherhood of Carpenters. They knew that, and yet they still kept working with them. And you, and, yeah. and it's hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find instances where the leaderships of the Democratic Party uh, in various cities, states, nationally, spoke up without significant protests on the part of black people to make them have no choice but to take action. Otherwise, they just let us suffer. The unions have been such a huge part, even since they've been shut down, basically, even since the unions have been, uh, saying, after 1980, you know, since the 1980s, you know, even though the unions have been weaker than they were before, 
they were a major part of the Democratic Party before the 1980s, but they're still, you know, okay. they're still uh, a major part of how it gets its funding, how it uh, how it uh, screens candidates and stuff like that. Like the union I'm a part of, you know, has been uh, backing Kamala Harris uh, for for years right. now. Right. You know, and for her run for district, you know, district attorney and stuff like that, or city attorney and things, you know, so that has made yes, that she, relationship. She was district attorney. She's always been police. <laughs> always been. Yeah. Always been. Yeah. 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 You know, so. She started, she started yeah. out working as a prosecutor, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how much is she really going to change right. in there? I mean, and, and you know, the, the psychic whiplash part of it is, like you're saying, uh, this is you know, all happening in the time of the most significant Black pro-democracy uprising. Yes. Really since the 1960s? Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, yeah. since 68. Absolutely. Uh, 68. You know, 68 didn't go globally like this did, you know. There was, yeah. you know, you might see a film about it or you'd hear, you know, celebrities from other countries speak out about the plight of Black people, but you didn't see global protesting and everything in 68. This is yeah. this is different. Yeah. yeah, this is different. The '60s were the time when Ronald Reagan was kind of you know cutting his teeth yes. in terms of how repressive he was going to be because he was repressive on you know the student uh, student uprisings that, uh, for example, led to the establishment of uh, of ethnic studies, black studies, and ethnic studies at San Francisco State University with the tw- the, um, the Third World uh, Liberation Front uprisings there by the students. And he appointed uh, people who were there to, to shut it down. Yes. You know, he came out against um, the free speech movement at Berkeley. Uh, he was, you know, he was a staunch person against that. Uh, uh, Mario Salvo back in uh, at Berkeley when they had the start of the free speech movement. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's been anti-democracy. You know, he was and the Republican Party was anti-democracy all the way back then. Which is funny because they go from, like we were saying in a previous podcast, they were the ones who were, the Republican Party were the ones who were advancing the civil rights laws in the 1860s. Just a hundred years back, you know, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. They were the ones who were pushing for 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, which basically made black people able to participate in, in democracy at any level. And we did have some successes in election, you know, elections at that time. But only because, only because there were uh, there was an army in the South occupying the South, enforcing, yes. you know, saying you have to let black people participate. Right. You know, and as soon as they get tired of that and, and pack up and go home, it's right back to a police state. Yes. Yeah, you know, and extra extra yeah. judicial. Uh, power, you know, extra legal activities like the Klan, you know, not just police state, but the, uh, you know, white man must be honored under every circumstance and black people have no rights at all. You know, so there was, it was even outside of the the extra legal system was against black people, you know, after reconstruction. It's always law, law and order is always lawless. Yes. In relation to us, you know, yeah, exactly. In relation to black people, yeah. yeah. And so, like you said, you know, now we have Democratic candidates based on law and order in the time of defund the police. Yeah, what a contradiction. 
Major. You know, the person that put the crime bill through and got police funding to the levels that it is now, Joe Biden, right? He, you know, the militarization of the police took a whole nother level with the crime bill, you know, and the fact mm-hmm. that the crime bill was only really an anti-black bill because they weren't talking about white people's crime. They were talking about, right. they were talking about the ghetto. That was really the, the unspoken part of it. The subtext, right? It was about it was about ghettos and barrios that needed to be under control, and really part of that was from the wars that got funded through the drug trade that brought them brought the uh, chaos back to uh, the ghettos and barrios, you know. So, <laughs> and the and it was wars that the the democratic Democrats and Republicans supported. And, and then on the other hand, you have someone like Kamala Harris who, you know, made her bones all the way through working with the police, for the police, and support of the police. And only one instance that she did something that pissed off a police, and that was to not seek the death penalty. And that was, you know, partly because she had to, uh, you know, satisfy her liberal base, you know, so... Right. Because in right. other cases, there's uh, people should have been exonerated if there was further investigation done, and she wouldn't authorize it. I mean, these are people. These are the people who black people kind of have to line up behind. I mean, there there are people, and I think you know, just today or yesterday, uh, as we're recording this, it's the it's the 23rd of uh, of August, 2020. You know, the 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 singer Jaheem. Uh, Hoagland, he goes by the name Jaheem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he came out in support of Donald Trump, but he, he apologized to Donald Trump for the way that people are, as he put it, you know, lying about it. And he said Donald Trump has, quote unquote, saved people. You know, and he said without Donald Trump, we would have been uh, finito, is, what, is that's how he put it. You know? <laughs> it's amazing. I, you know, it's. This the, the the idea that people are just lying to you in your face when you see, uh, you know, like you can watch one screen and hear him say that, and right next to that, if you had a split screen, you can see Trump sending in, uh, you know, unmarked uh, secret police to carry out his mm-hmm. demands. You know what I'm saying? Yep. To you know to yep. to assault uh, people protesting police abuse you know so mm-hmm. so what's the response to police abuse for trump is to fire pepper balls and rubber bullets and clear out a, a peaceful demonstration so he can hold a bible upside down and and yeah. you know and act like he's pro- protecting christianity you know he's the savior yeah. of christ now like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't think about that. You know, that's some arrogance to think you're saving Christ. And then for mm-hmm. and for Jaheem to say that, it's just, I just wonder how big the check was, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know what his career was like lately. So I, I think he's in the genre of uh, Anthony Hamilton, but I think Anthony Hamilton is superior, you know? So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He said, quote, we the people, uh, Jaheem said, we the people have turned our backs on this great man who've been working effortlessly to restore the balance for the republic and didn't even take a paycheck. 
What what is the bound? You know he got paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> used word for word Trump's own rhetoric. They yeah, you got paid, man. I hope it was a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, or yeah. Uh-huh. You know, the brother might be hitting it. Hella hard, as they say, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's what you do when the last thing you had that was popular uh, was uh, 15 years ago, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it. I can't wait to see what they're all going to be saying about him on social media now. Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, yeah. yeah they're gonna be ripping him. They're gonna, you know, I mean, because that it's reflecting. I mean, basically, his his um, he he didn't really make an argument. I mean, he he's clearly got some issues with. I mean, I don't want to pick on the brother's use of language too much, but how are you gonna say he has been working effortlessly? That's Trump, man. Right? Word for word, what Trump says in his own speeches. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, but that doesn't even make no sense. How, how do you work effortlessly? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... It's, Trump's as miseducated as he is. That's what I'm saying. Literally, literally, <laughs> watch some of those midday press conferences that he does about coronavirus and he literally uh, says the same thing word for word you know <laughs> <laughs> that illogical uh, language is his specifically you know if i yeah. if i did a little research we could uh, yeah, we could play him back saying it you know <laughs> man yeah. the only thing i can think is the, the brother got paid and uh his, yeah. and his, and i got to figure to make that move, your situation is desperate. I mean, he, he, you know, one of his kids must be a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that'd be like the only that'd be the only way that that could be forgiven. You know? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, brother, they, had, yeah. they had a gun to your son's head or your daughter's head, and. Uh, I feel you, man. I know. I, you know. I know you hate it, but you know you're a prisoner of war, and I understand you're a prisoner of war, and you're trying to save your family. So uh, we give yeah. we give you a pass under those circumstances. But man, if right. for any other reason, <laughs> no, nah, nah, brother, you're all bad, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> man. Yeah. You, you know he. It's almost like it's almost like if I saw him saying it, it I, mm-hmm. I know he was reading cue cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they had the wide lens on the camera, you could see Trump yeah. saying, whispering to him in the background. <laughs> yeah, you could probably hear him writing on the writing on the cue card with a sharpie marker. Yeah. Yeah, put the wide <laughs> put the wide angle lens on, and there's Trump. You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man. I just, man, 
Man, this, he, he's trying to make a strong statement, and the first few words <laughs> of it don't even come out right. That tells you that some, some, something's wrong. Something's wrong, man. Because yeah. nobody says I worked. I worked effortlessly. Except if you, Trump. If you except Trump. And was like, boss. Except Trump, right? <laughs> except someone who doesn't, who's not used to saying he worked at all. Yeah. <laughs> For real. <laughs> you might say I worked tirelessly, yeah. but you don't. Know, Effortless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, brother, brother, don't let him make you sound stupid, Jaheem. Don't let him, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> At least get the uh, syntax right. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> oh, God. That's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Work effortlessly, effortlessly right together. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's that's hey, that's why when white people criticize the way black people speak, I know it's messed yeah. up because white people are the ones that taught it. <laughs> this is a trip, man, because because um I mean I was looking at some statistics, G Man, in twenty sixteen, uh black men uh you know, in terms of how many of us voted for Trump, it was way bigger than I thought. It was it was like fourteen percent of black men, according to the exit polls, uh, voted for Trump, yeah. and like almost no black women voted for Trump. But like fourteen percent, man, that sounds like a lot in twenty sixteen. And you know, I have to wonder if that's going to be that bad uh, or worse in in this coming election. Yeah, you never know. You know, there's like so many things that go into that. Like if you were to ask me why that happened, there's like a lot yeah. of elements at play, right? That go mm-hmm. that are historic, that are in the moment, that are a response to, you know, uh there's and even, you know, part of it even has to do with the desperation that we feel right now. But yeah, that's you know, it's disappointing that you see black men do that, but there, you know, if anybody wants to seriously examine it, there's a number of things to take into account when you look at a vote like that, you know. Like first off, you're uh looking at someone running against the person that called us super predators, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and and when she was calling us super predators, we were 10, 11, well, not me. <laughs> But y'all, yeah. the rest of y'all were 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, you know. And, yep, and, yep. and you're getting your ass whipped by the police if you're out in the hood, you know. They, yep. they pick you up in Richmond and drop you off in Hayward with no money until you get home. You know, mm-hmm. they, were doing, they were doing dirt to us and she was justifying it. That would be one yep. thing that needs to come into it, you know. And, mm-hmm. and there's... It's we're, black people and black men specifically. We're as disgusted with the economy, working, trying to make a legitimate living as everybody else is. And what Clinton and you know free trade agreements, like you brought up, or I don't, did you? I think you mentioned the free trade agreement and NAFTA yeah. and all that. Yeah, you know, all of that stuff hit us just as hard as everybody else. Like. Like I was saying earlier, at the moment, the one time where we had some real trade union protection, you know, with manufacturing jobs and working in uh, 
uh, automotive plants. I mean, black people in those regions, they prospered from it. But then Clinton comes along and, you know, globalization, free trade, man, they, they should have called it free labor because all they had to yeah. pay was uh, just enough for people to still breathe and eat, you know. And then you look at, you know, you look at the ways that wages were affected and everything. Yeah, black men felt that too. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotions that go into the process of voting. You know, I'm not going to try, you know, I'm not. And, you know, voting for Trump at that point, you know, it will you can't give people a full pass on it because all the, all the rest races sort of history that he had. And you could, you might have not been been aware of it at that point, uh, but but voting for Trump now is different. Uh, at that point, I think anybody that was a working class man, uh, the kind of jobs that men do, you know, construction, manufacturing you know, hard physical labor, we had experienced the economy collapse all the way back during Reagan's period. And so Trump, mm -hmm. th Trump saying that things weren't working right. And we, ex we had experienced it as working class men uh, through Clinton and what the, mm -hmm. you know, the laws that Clinton put into effect that severely impacted our ability to make a living. You know, because, I mean, the workplace is a gendered environment, right? Like the kind of work that I did, there was rarely a woman doing uh, the that sort of work. There were, I, I only saw like two female iron workers my entire career in the construction trades. When I worked on concrete construction job sites, uh, doing things, what we call flat finished decks where you had to, you know, all day long... <laughs> You're spreading uh, four by sixes uh, by 20 foot. That's a four inch by six inch piece of wood that's 20 foot long. And it probably weighs like 80 pounds. And, you know, the majority of your day is moving two or three of those at a time. You know, Damn. you know, it was, you just had hard work. And then in the process of doing that, you get Reagan, you get Bush, you get Clinton and you watch a job that pays you $20 an hour go down to paying you 10, you know, literally mm -hmm. in uh, like literally in a matter of a month or so with some of the recessions. Right. So I understand, I understand why people would be pissed off, you know, and if you look at the education system, what we understand about government on average, you know, just the average working class man, is really limited in terms of what we understand because what the media gives us doesn't explain all the processes at work at all. You know, there's there's yeah. very few media outlets that maybe democracy now, some of the things that you see on uh, some of the deeper dives by some reporters on uh, the less, you know, well-known networks, maybe some of the documentaries you might get on PBS or something might delve into it a little bit. But for the most part, we're just generally miseducated about, you know, both parties and what they're doing to us. And so anybody that says they're going to make it better and sort of, uh, you know, calls out the powers that be, 
you know, you might think you're for that dude, you know, you know, especially given what, you know, like prior to me going to college, I, you know, I didn't get exposed to anything that gave me a real insight on a lot about how the world actually works. Now, Brown, though, you know, it's really clear what Trump is about. Like, even like the fact that Trump was discriminatory, it wasn't widespread. Like, like his policies about housing and the numerous times he got uh, Kim and his father had uh, violated uh, Fair Housing Act. You know, I wasn't aware of that. You know, and I paid attention during the the first election, right? And then. Uh, I think I didn't really start becoming really aware of the Central Park Five stuff until after he was elected. You know what I'm saying? And part of that is due to, you know, because if you're working every day, I don't have time to do like deep research on Trump. And anyway, by the time Trump was (laughs) up for his first election, I didn't, you know, uh, already had a sense of what the system was about anyway. So, but for the average, for the average black person and, the and also the gender politics around work and black masculinity. I, I get how it could happen. I and I can see the manipulation that's at work too, you know. Cause you got, you know, yeah. part of Trump's appeal to men in general is to bring back their manhood, you know. If you were became an adult in the early seventies, uh, from a working class background, your manhood was deeply tied to your ability to make a living and to work hard. You know what I'm saying? Like those, those Budweiser commercials with the dudes getting off work, having a beer or when it's time to relax, you know, that was the ethic, man. Like you get out, you work hard and you take care of your family. You know what I'm saying? And now we're got this emerging uh, technical economy that doesn't need you anymore. And you sort of, you know, the, the system made a lot, lot of people feel devalued. A lot of men feel devalued, you know, because the traditional jobs that they did weren't there anymore. So, uh, you know, the changes in terms of your worth is, it was deeply tied to employment, you know. Because otherwise yeah. you were just a bum. And this is, that's happening at the same time as they're pumping crack cocaine into the communities, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to prop up the uh, the wars that they want to carry on that Congress won't fund. Right, exactly. Yeah, the Iran-Contra and, you know, what was going on in Nicaragua. You know, they had a uh, socialist government in Nicaragua that, uh, they wanted to have the CIA go down there and uh, depose. Daniel Ortega was one of the main figures, but there was a, you know, initially it was a group of people called the Sandinistas that uh, were for the people. It was a sort of a grassroots uh, Cuban-supported uh, uprising against the Nicaraguan government that was led by uh this dictator, basically a dictator supported by the U.S. government named Samosa. And he had torture chambers, secret police, the CIA had been down there in Nicaragua since uh, Chiquita Banana made all their money off of 
banana production in Nicaragua. And so it was in, it was in U.S. capitalistic interest to make sure that they had a non-communist government, a government of their choosing to be in place. The Sandinistas had managed to overthrow Samosa, and then as a result, uh, the Contras came into existence. They fought against the Sandinistas, and Reagan's government wanted to support them by funding them, giving them weapons, you know, helping them get arms to, uh, you know, throw the Sandinistas out of power. It was a CIA move, basically. And at that point, the Congress said, no, we're not going to fund that. You know, you have to keep in mind that, you know, the United States was still dealing with the repercussions from the Vietnam War, all of the activities that the CIA got exposed for, being involved in during the Vietnam War, like uh, assassinations in Laos, uh, all the problems that the U.S. uh, military brought into places like Cambodia and just killed all those people in Vietnam. For for now, a country that you can go to, to, you know, too freely, right? So they were still Mm -hmm. sort of uh, feeling that. And then here's the, you know, they feel like the United States feels like uh, South America is their sphere of power. They sort of believe they that idea of manifest destiny, that they should be the dominant government of the region. And so the Sandinistas, being supported by Cuba, who is the enemy of the United States since Castro came to power, um, they were going to have it. And so even though, you know, even though they had been exposed to the church committee, uh, there was a senator named Church that ran uh, uh, these hearings uh, through a select committee that exposed all the CIA's assassinations, uh, illegal coups that they had been involved in, like what people are complaining about Russia doing right now to the United States. The United States have been doing it all over the world and uh, at least all over the what you would call the third world, the brown, black and brown world, not in the European world, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all of the other parts of the world where they want to get resources, where they had an economic interest in it or whatever uh, American empire required, you know, the Middle East, they had been doing all of these things to uh, destroy democratic, organic, indigenous democratic movements in those countries. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was all exposed. And so for a moment, at least I think Congress was trying to play down uh, that sort of uh, American interventionist practice of intervening in democratically elected governments that we didn't, that the U.S. didn't like because they were socialist or communist or whatever the case might be. And so, mm-hmm. and so the, the Congress wouldn't fund Reagan starting a war in Nicaragua. So instead what they did, and this is, you know, Oliver North who had been a commentator on uh, Fox news. He's no longer, I don't think, but Oliver North, Elliot Abrams, who's in charge of the, the central American part of the state department right now under Trump. I think he's still part of it. Yep. You know, <clears throat> uh, 
all these people were involved in basically supporting an illegal war. You know, that was a democratically elected government in Nicaragua and the Contras were assassinating, killing people to destroy a government that had been elected into place by the people of Nicaragua. And, and so it's crazy, right? It, I mean, sometimes this is recent, right? Iran-Contra, Iran-Contra, cocaine, crack cocaine epidemic, all of that's really recent history. But yet I have to keep in mind that, you know, a lot of this stuff is over 30 years old now, right? So yeah. a lot of young people are unaware of this. A lot of other people didn't pay attention when it was happening. So they don't really see it as a significant issue. But the whole rise of the crack epidemic, cocaine, the introduction of cocaine and crack cocaine to black communities was all connected to what was going on during the Reagan administration and the, the uh, Iran-Contra situation. All of that involved trying to depose the government of Nicaragua. So you had, yeah. you had the U.S. government setting up connections with cocaine producers that would use the funds that they received from the cocaine sales to fund the war in Nicaragua. Basically, the whole premise of that show, Snowfall. The movie uh, Kill the Messenger with uh, Jeremy Renner. Yep. And I think um, Narcos Mexico uh, has also has a plot line about, like, it's a major part of its of its plot line too. Right. Um, is that, 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 uh, that historical, um, you know, connection, right. uh, the selling of crack cocaine in black communities to, uh, they, they even have, um, they even have Migos on there. Uh, the rap artist Migos, uh, showing the Mexicans how they make crack cocaine, how they take the raw, you know, powder cocaine and turn it into crack cocaine yeah. and give them a sample. Yeah, I, I watched that episode. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah, yeah. man. It's crazy, you know. And, yeah. and and then really, if you you know, really all of this, all of the devastation that cracked, uh, all of the violence that went along with the drug economy in the black community, all that goes to people couldn't make their money off of bananas like they used to. Yeah, which is crazy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know who's the company that owns Chiquita Banana. I forget right now. But anyway, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Del Monte, you know, all you, okay. you can look at. There was documentaries back in the 80s and so forth that talked about the the, you know, the reason that U.S. military power ended up in Nicaragua back in the 1920s. But, you know, mm -hmm. all of this traces from some very rich, rich, powerful people losing their revenue stream, you know? And so what do they do? They use all these obtuse, seemingly disconnected means to get the power back in the hands of who they want to have it. And as a, and we're, black people simply play the role of either the consumer or the consumed You know, that's just another reason why uh, 
for me personally, I'm cynical about the voting system and only see it as a sort of a strategic action. And if there's really no strategic benefit from it, it doesn't matter. In this case, what matters is, like you said, the speed bump, you know, on the road to authoritarianism. And, and I would say, you know, to immediate genocide. Yeah. I mean, this, this would, with the Nazis in the streets feeling ever more emboldened, you know, like, like, uh, like somebody said, I don't know if Trump's a white supremacist, but I know the white supremacists think he's a white supremacist. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. They're, they're coming out in support of him. You know, then you got him sending the federal police with blacked out uh, badges, blacked out, uh, no, no way of identifying them by their cars or by their uniforms, no way of telling them apart from these neo-Nazis and Proud Boy and Adam Waffen division types who also wear tactical gear, right. you know, snatching people up and throwing them into cars on the streets of, of, uh, of Portland and Oakland and uh, all these other cities around the country. You got that. You got Trump, you know, uh, straight up uh, taking an approach uh, that basically says old people and whoever else, you know, and black people, uh, indigenous people, poor people basically are just going to have to die from coronavirus yeah. because we're not going to do anything to help them. So kind of a, a let them die, not even laissez-faire, like let it be, you know, the ways that he has been treating, you know, the, the children in cages, like that, Separate, that should have been it. Right? Separating them from their families to never be reconnected. Ever. Yeah. That, that, you know, that's about as close to uh, uh straight up, uh, death camp as you can get, you know. Yeah, I mean that's like what uh what uh Pinochet was doing down in um right. in Chile. You know, he would take the, the children of of the the leftists down there, the students, anyone suspected of being on the left, throw them into prison camps. They were probably they would you know be tortured and a lot and a lot of them would be killed. But the children of them, they'd be allowed to give birth to the children, and then the children would be taken away and adopted off to one of the families. Of uh, the upper classes, yes, you know Pinochet, uh, Pinochet's friends, yeah, you know, who wanted to. It was, it was so bad that they had a class of people called the disappeared in in Chile. Yeah, los desaparecidos. Yes, yeah. This this shit is so systematic. The playbook of it, yeah. You know, you can see how it's being used in one country to the next to the next. You know, um, <clears throat> and that's another book that I think we should recommend that people look at. You know, and maybe we'll get to talk about it at some point in time. Is um. Shock Doctrine, you know, which right. Naomi Klein really kind of takes and summarizes a lot of that and connects it to the ideas of neoliberal capitalism coming out of the University of Chicago and people like Milton Friedman, who was, right. you know, somebody Ronald Reagan and George uh, Bush, you know, honored him. Right. Um, you know, uh, he was kind of their, their, their intellectual leader and hero. And even though I don't think Bill Clinton uh, honored uh, Milton Friedman, he was using the same up the same the same philosophy the same ideas you know that milton freeman advocated that's where the whole program of nafta comes from you 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 know you basically you open up trade so that uh so that the business is going to move to where the lower prices are right. and if there are no borders that they have to abide by they just flow overseas and that makes the drug trade a lot easier and facilitates it as well you know right. stuff like that and the people who are left most most behind uh, are black and indigenous people, right? You know, and black people are also left behind. So that that and what you're saying right now is important yeah. about in terms of the resentment that 
black male voters may have had uh, during the first election because, you know, Trump said, you know, he was out there criticizing NAFTA because they had destroyed all the American jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, given, Mm -hmm. given a working class, working class person's limited political education, because we don't talk about, like you said earlier, any alternative political systems in the United States. And if you got poorly educated uh, or just educated enough to do your job on the assembly line or as a janitor or whatever sort of fucked up job they give you, then you're not, you're not going to, you know, have a broader perspective on this, except to think that, yeah, Trump's right. That, that NAFTA was messed up. So yeah, if he, if he can give me a job back, then my life will be fine. You know, and it's just, you know, Trump is not, you know, the what you and I are talking about is, you know, we have a perspective that's based on having awareness of this history. We've exposed ourselves to these histories like you brought up Naomi Klein. And I would uh, mention that book, Killing Hope, by I think you said it was William Bloom. But I remember reading all of these interventions of the U.S., around the world or all of the information about U.S. foreign policy in places like Iran and Iraq, you know, like mm-hmm. Dom Hussein didn't get in power without the U.S. supporting him, the U.S. supporting him through the CIA. And the reason they would support him is because they had an economic interest in having control over the flow of oil. And if they controlled him, they controlled the flow. The minute they didn't control him, then he needed to be gone. No different than what they did with Noriega. No different than what we were just talking about, you know, the drug coming from Nicaragua into the ghetto. No different than, like you're saying, the playbook that they used during the Vietnam era where they had heroin, you know, uh, coming from the Golden Triangle supported by the CIA and distributed into black communities and creating these drug kingpins that made tremendous amounts of money from spreading something that was destroying black people, you know, partly because mm-hmm. of part, absolutely because of a miseducation because some of those yeah. same drug dealers, when uh, people from the black liberation army would communicate with them you know, tell them what they were doing, explain to them the pro- they stopped doing it, you know? So, yeah. so I, yeah. you know, I mean, part of what we're looking at with black people, black men specifically voting for Trump, they mm-hmm. wouldn't want their job restored. Who wouldn't want to be able to have a place to stay? And then if you look right. at the, what the policies have been coming up to Trump, like you say, introduction to crack, heroin epidemics, opioid epidemic we've been dealing with the opioid epidemic forever but at least you know it looked like trump was saying oh this has to change america's in despair we're going to change it yeah we we could be a sucker and fall for it the first time but you know the second time they got to have a gun to my child's head before i'd say i'm, I'm working effortlessly effortlessly <laughs> for real i mean the the, the level of frustration i mean you know, it it can be channeled into a direction that will actually address the problem, right. or it can be channeled into a direction that will make the problem worse. Right. I mean, we've seen this before. Right. If we look, 
you know, even if we looked back 100 years ago, 100, 100 and some change, you know, like after the Civil War and stuff like that, black people, uh, and sorry, after, after the Civil War, you know, there was the, re the reconstruction where black people were given some civil rights in a basic sense in the South, where most of us lived, you know, that was enforced by the presence of the Union Army. As the Reconstruction started to fade away toward 1870s and stuff like that, black people were organized and were forming these multiracial coalitions with uh, with white white people, particularly farmers alliances and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. And they were voting together, and they were voting for similar candidates together. But we fell for an okie doke. So, many of us fell for an okie doke. We so believed in the uh, the candidates that are white, you know. Um, you know, uh, farmer, uh, you know, uh, fellow farmers or whatever were, were pushing, and they pushed the very candidates who, when we voted for them, ended up disenfranchising. Right. Them. They ended up being ones who went into office and passed those laws that disenfranchised black people, took away the vote, took away our civil rights, basically reduced us back to a new form of slavery, and we voted for them. Yeah. So we're, we're, you know, but that's because you know, and at that time, I don't, I don't fault people at that time because the level of education that we'd had coming out of slavery, right. where we weren't even allowed to read, you know, right. where it was a, a hanging, a killing offense for us to even, you know, be taught to read, right. you know, right. like, um, you know, of course we didn't have that, but now we, we, we have had some exposure, you know, but the distribution of it has not been even enough. The distribution of the information, the knowledge that we need to have right. to be able to have sound judgment as to what our political interests are right. has not been and that's what's reflected in somebody like a Jaheem who's pu who's putting up the, the his Instagram post saying that he's uh, he's supporting Trump and he thinks Trump has done great things for us. When Trump just a couple of weeks ago announced he was revoking uh you know a, a rule, basically an Obama era rule that was enforcing the fair housing. Yeah, aspect. exactly. Talk about the suburbs you know? and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah. but you know when you talk about education, man, we you know we still don't really look at R. Kelly. R. Kelly made all that money he couldn't even read. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we we're. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if we took a deeper look at the level of education that exists in the black community, and particularly the way black boys in school go together, which they don't. Then man, we're yeah. you know it is you know it's easier to see how how people that back Trump can look at us and use the the analytical tools that they have to determine how to get us. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what yeah. the CIA mastered. That's how they've yes. disrupted governments all over the world. That's why that book Killing Hope is so important because it's you know mm -hmm. just like the ways that the uh, they have economic hitmen that go around and make countries follow the U.S.'s uh, will or run the risk of having their people starve to death. That's why, like, on the one hand, um, you know, I'm going to, I said the things I did about Jaheim, but I don't know enough about him to know, listening to the way that sentence was written, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, exactly. I don't know enough to know about what's what's he's actually thinking, and I kind of I mm -hmm. I kind of fault the educated class of black people 
for leaving uh, so many of us behind in the dark about how the world works and what's actually going on. All those people that support support Kamala Harris, like Joanne Reed and uh, Chief of Staff of Kamala and pretty much the whole sort of elite class Black people that you see doing political commentary on television are divorced from Black people in the whole and then on the main. You know, they don't, their life experience doesn't even, uh, you know, represent any of the ways that we live. Like I was listening to John McWhorter one time uh, try to to act like uh, it was strange that young men would be engaged in violent activities when they didn't have income, even though American society is built on gangsterism for every immigrant ethnic group that came to the U.S. You know, there were, mm. there's there been Jewish gangsters, Italian gangsters, Chinese gangsters, there's Latino gangsters. Uh, you know, the, the one thing that was different for each of them, though, they had a means towards political power, which Black people haven't had and had available for the most part. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the, yeah. uh, the ghetto is, has no path toward real political power in the United States. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, if Africa can exist in the state of desperation that it does for such a large continent, the people of Africa yeah. suffer the way they do, then it's not amazing or surprising that black people in America in the ghetto do so poorly. But, you know, for those black people that know, they should be trying to help other black people understand. Basically, people of the black middle class have to be willing to commit what's called class suicide. Yeah. They have to be willing to uh, not, you know, I'm not saying people should let their families starve or discourage people from, you know, becoming lawyers and doctors and, you know, business people even, stuff like that. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not going to, going to say that. But what I am going to say is that there are institutions within the black bourgeoisie, uh, and this happens in the U.S., it happens in all these other countries around the world, where a select few, a select few black people are raised up, elevated by this white power structure that we live in. Right. And, you know, and told to be the administrators over all the rest of us black people. And, and that's, that, that includes things like facilitating, you know, this miseducation and things like that. Whereas, you know, people who are conscious that that is the program for them have to kind of buck against that and try to find some way to deconstruct the class relation within the black community so that we can really be, I mean, like when I was raised up, we, we were taught, we were taught me, my, my black middle-class family, we were taught that, we were supposed to help our brothers and sisters. We were taught that, you know, okay, we might be this, the only black family in on this particular block and one of, you know, a handful of black families in this particular neighborhood right now, but there are more who want to get into neighborhoods like this that have access to good schools and stuff like that. And so we have to be able to, to help them. Now, that's the, that's, there's a way you can interpret that where you just go along with the, the usual playbook, which is kind of the, 
you know, the talented 10th, uh, you know, uh, Du Bois type idea where, okay, I'm part of the talented 10th. I'm supposed to help basically, you know, uh, uplift right. other black people without fundamentally being critical of the class relation, right. without, without being critical of the fact that uh, my belly is full, but they're hungry, you know? Right. But right. another way, there's another side to that that is more like later Du Bois or really more like a Stokely Carmichael or, you know, or other black, you know, radical uh, leaders, you know, who said, no, no, you know, if you really want to help the masses of black people, you have to let go of the class positioning that formed you and you have to let go of the idea that there should be a class situation where some people's bellies are full while other people are hungry. Right. And, you know, the take, problem is... Take, take that out yeah. of that morality, that moral realm that uh, the upper or middle class black people in the church put it in, yeah. Because it is. With the, the church is one of the mechanisms, one of many mechanisms that kind of makes you sort of gloss over the class relation. And, you know, we might as well say it. electoral politics is another one. Yeah. Electoral politics, the whole the whole pageantry around electoral politics, you know, is built on the idea that a few should speak for the many. And yeah. uh, and that the, the, all the, the hopes and dreams we have for the many should be invested in the few. So Kamala Harris, even though, you know, she she uh, she comes from uh, you know, Jamaica and things like that, but, but people recognize her as black. She was an AKA, which is one of the, the divine nine, you know, yeah. black fraternities and sororities. But, you know, we, we kind of take those as signifiers that, oh, she's one of us, so she's going to speak for us. She went through those middle-class institutions like Howard University, like Alpha Kappa Alpha, you know, and, you know, and the divine nine and all that stuff, and they're going to speak for us. Right. Whereas we really need to be saying, this whole class relation within our community is destructive and toxic. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, because it allows yeah. some people to think that they have some form of moral superiority, even though they're in the same racial category. They're not like those people. You know, it yeah. it allows that mythology to exist when really it's simply a matter of having resources and access to information. You know that uh, and and. And those ideas that you're describing, just, I, you know, it wasn't part of my growing up experience, but, you know, it starts when you're a child. I'm sure it goes in the classroom, you know, and then when you get to college, it gets further ingrained and concentrated, including through the fraternity and sorority system or the black Greek system, right? And then by the time that you... Uh, start making that political move, you feel like you can talk down to black people because you're black. Not that you're yep. not like the way that Obama would chastise, uh, I forget the name that he called black men, but it basically, you know, gave them a, gave them sort of a representative name, like, and starts talking about Charles. Pokey. Yeah. yeah. Pokey or Peanut. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And they need to take off the house slippers and, put on some shoes and get out there and help get the vote out. You know, when, uh, when in reality, the only person that he was interested in was his own sort of, uh, place in history, his self, you know, uh, because the yes. fact that he wouldn't and didn't have the, uh, 
nerve to speak up against uh, police harassment and, and, and abuse until he was damn near out the door already says a lot. Yeah. You know, like his friend, his yeah. one of his mentors, Henry Louis Gates, gets almost beat up by the police, gets arrested by the police at his own mm-hmm. front door, right, at Harvard. Yeah. And and uh, Obama said the police are stupid. Here, the sergeant in the police department of, uh, in Cambridge, I guess it was, uh, yep. calls him out on it. And Obama is forced to apologize for calling him stupid. And in addition, he has a beer uh, garden summit. You know, like, yep. uh, man, mm-hmm. uh, he didn't have to do that. He chose no. to the, do that for his own political expediency, you know. Yes. So yeah, you're you know that all of that all of that stuff comes into play, and uh, there's you know there's a lot of resentment I think you know amongst working class black men that nobody wants to acknowledge why that resentment would be there, you know. Yeah. And and it mm-hmm. needs, that needs to be acknowledged. And at the same time, uh, you know, like I said, this time around, people can't be, black men can't be sitting here and pretending like they don't know what Trump is about by now, you know? Right. Like, I mean, if if you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, it's easy for you not to know what's going on politically, but Trump's done enough that there's so many points of inflection that at least one of those is enough for you to know what he's about. I had to get into an argument with a family member of mine who has a lot of friends uh, from his fraternity days. And these are this is a white fraternity that this particular uh, family member of mine was in. And um, a lot of the white fraternity members that, that, that he's friends with are Trump supporters. And some of them are even NYPD. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, this particular family member of mine, uh, you know, he's, he descends like, you know, my part of the family, of course, is U.S., uh, is from the U.S. South, uh, but his other part of the family is from Africa. Right. And Trump sat up there and called African countries no shit. shitholes. Oh, yeah. oh, God. You know, it's like, <laughs> how uh, my family member could be, uh, you know, friends right. with people who right. that kind of, kind of, you know, you know, but the coronavirus thing is uh, should be a major, major signal to any black person who's thinking about voting for Trump. Or, that, or, or even, and the police repression. Yeah, or even just saying that there's some good white supremacist in Charlotte uh, during those yes. during that whole period of time, uh, you know, in, uh, what was that, Virginia? Very fine. Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. He said they were very fine people on both sides, which was including Nazis, basically. Yeah, I mean the whole other side was white supremacists. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. that was yeah. that was the yeah. other side of the issue. That's why Charlottesville oh. even jumped off, is because the other side was white supremacists. I mean, yeah. you know, on one level, I sort of get disgusted when I hear some a black person saying that, but then on a, you know, the, you know, my academic past says, man. That is really something that needs to be psychoanalyzed because it doesn't, it's not rational. You know what I'm saying? Right. Just like right. the response of uh, the Karens is a, irre- you know, irrational response to 
something that they see that they imagine as a demon almost in black people, right? That's why they have that irrational response. And for a black person to be supporting someone like Trump, man, that, that right. you know, that really, you know, if, if you know, if, if I were in charge of a university, man, I'd be encouraging uh, researchers to dig into that aspect of a community of people that would support someone that's against them. No different yeah. than I would, you know, like, you know, I could be more objective about the Jewish community and Jews that would have supported Hitler. And there were those Jews that supported Hitler. And we know, oh, yeah. we know historically how that turned out, you know, they actually yeah. helped facilitate yeah. uh, a lot of the deaths that occurred uh, under Hitler. So, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that you have people collaborate, uh, you know, like that, uh, it, it's an important aspect to understand about uh, what what human beings do and, and, you know, why would they do that, you know, at a, and, you know, yeah. at a more dispassionate level. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's the, there's the, you could study the psychoanalytic side of it. Right. What creates the kind of mentality, the kind of subjects to take up basically a white supremacist cause? Yes. You know, uh, and that would Candace lead us to study. <laughs> yeah. White supremacy and, and blackface. <laughs> yes. And the there's a whole tradition that she comes from. In fact, there's a whole sort of uh, social formation called the black conservative yes. that has been created for just that purpose. You could trace it back to like what Du Bois said in, in the souls of black folk about uh, Booker T Washington yes. and how he was yes. basically raised up, not so much as the leader of black people, but as a sort of uh, a sort of uh, emissary, or maybe that's too really, really what we're talking about is kind of a, a race manager. Yes. He was raised up as a race manager by white people to manage black people. Uh, that's, that's not what Du Bois says directly, but that is basically, you know, uh, the, and if you phrase it, you know, in other ways, uh, it sounds like he's, you know, kind of a go-between and he wasn't because a go-between implies that there are two, two sides that have equal power. Right. And yeah. we did not in any way have equal power at the time that Booker T. Washington was saying the things he said, doing the things he did. Right. Yeah. Telling people not to worry about the political environment. And just concentrate yeah. on working, doing your job. I mean, the rhetoric is so close to what you uh, get right now from Trump. And and the other thing, you know, to keep this all connected to what we're talking about, it is no different than the CIA's tactics in the countries that they've overthrown. You need those that sort of a puppet leader that gets up and stands up as the person that you should follow versus the other person, sort of what Kanye West appears to be doing uh, his, in, in his role uh, for this election. You know, that they need... He's auditioning for that. Yeah, exactly. They need somebody. And I don't know that mm -hmm. black people would necessarily fall for Kanye. Some might, you know, some might, you know, fall for him. And, you know, the whole point of uh, CIA interventions has been, you know, the first efforts aren't to send in the troops and start murdering people. The first effort is to uh, engage in psychological and political warfare, you know, yeah. ideological warfare. You start putting out messages 
that uh, sort of mess with people's understanding of things. You know, like, I mean, Kanye is perfect, right? He said uh, Bush didn't care about black people. And now he's turning around and saying Trump does. You know, Kanye was significantly saying something that everybody understood to be true at that point. And now for him to say this, man, you couldn't ask for a more manipulative sort of process to be in effect uh, in terms of what he's saying and what he's doing right now, you know? And you can see the impact it's having on his mental health. Yes. To be making this such a sharp U-turn. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know? There's a, I think he used to be considered a conscious rapper in some in some circles. Oh yeah, I mean, I used to watch and like some of his videos, man. Like I forget that one where he said uh, he was going to get rich and marry a white woman. You know, like <laughs> it, was, it was it was like a whole critique of the uh, of the capitalistic drive of hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. like what mm-hmm. what rappers were going for. You know, really, they might have started out you know, being down and then by the time it's over, you know, they they're they're no different than uh star athletes, you know, they're <laughs> yeah. they're doing the same thing, except for LeBron James, you know, otherwise. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right, exactly. Yeah. But uh and the and see that going back to what you were saying about the class dynamic, that's what your LeBron sort of represents as someone who, you know, you know, moved out of his class position, what he was born into, got to super status, but he uh, he doesn't appear to have forgot, you know, his connection to that place, to that geography, yes. you know? Yes. yes. And when you look at a lot of the people from the black middle class, I mean, man, it's just put on the, put on the running shoes and just keep running. And there's no time to ever slow down look back, stay connected. You're trying to cut those ties to those people that represent a social pathology in your mind. I'm not black, I'm OJ. Yes, thank you. I'm not black, I'm Tiger Woods. Thank you, yeah. You know? Yeah. Even though though OJ and Tiger Woods both had their nigger moments, you know? Oh yes, they did. <laughs> oh yes, they did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hey, just like uh, just like you were saying about Arthur Fletcher, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, Arthur Fletcher, who was uh, I think I think he was a, a black Republican during, and he worked in the I believe he worked in the Nixon administration for a minute, and, mm-hmm. and yes. yeah, and then he went on <laughs> to. Uh, you know, he was an advocate for, and I think didn't. I wonder if affirmative action came out under Nixon. Was that a Nixon? Yep, it did. Okay, yeah, he yeah. was called the father of. He was called the father of affirmative action. Okay, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Arthur Fletcher was right, yeah. right, and so that was his idea of progress, right? Like affirmative action would be a way to undo all of the uh, sort of the history of black oppression. And then he found out they weren't even with that, you know. <laughs> he, he, it, was, yeah. it was so bad that even though he was a advocate for Nixon, who was, uh, you know, running COINTELPRO and everything else, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, Nixon comes to power because he's against, you know, uh, black civil rights, basically that he he's ready to bring in 
the policing powers and suppress the black power movement. And, and Fletcher signs up on Nixon's team, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, because he thinks that the free enterprise is what black people need and not a political revolution, right? And right. and then even, you know, after all that, in the end, he realized that the, you know, they weren't about, you know, improving the true condition of black people's lives. He, you know, he ends up right. breaking ties with them. Now, it's, uh, yeah. you know, and you can, you know, you can trace the lineage from him to uh, uh, Robert Woodson, who uh, who was a uh, campaigner for Reagan. I remember when Tony, uh, there used to be a show called Tony Brown's Journal. He would appear on that show arguing for the black conservative cause. He was like uh, really hard on black teenage pregnancy. Like all, you know, all of the quote unquote pathologies of black people which apparently ends up being poor people's pathologies because all these poor white people are doing the exact same thing that black people do you know what i'm saying poor latino poor white people poor everybody uh you out of out of wedlock birth uh opioid or heroin addiction it's amazing why people can't see at this point in time that Really, what was happening is you were looking at a community of people that were oppressed and neglected, and that's the reason you saw all the problems happening with black people that did and continue to happen. But instead of anybody trying to do anything to seriously correct it, they just let it spread, and now it's becoming what America is. You know, you know where uh, you know there's a. Uh, sort of a reflection of American culture that says, yeah, all you got to do is look at what happened to black people and the ways that wealth, power, and all of that is concentrated is absolutely anti-democratic in the way that it works in the United States. And so not only do they deny black people's uh, political dreams and, and hopes, but they'll allow everybody else to suffer the same way, you know. But, yeah. but we yeah. we just have to realize, though, that every time we try to build a coalition with those people that are suffering that same way, our black skin stops that from ever becoming a true uh, coalition, you know, because yeah. it's easy to sell out black people, basically, is what it is. Yeah, so we're still losing our equilibrium, man, and um, that's that's uh, that's kind of have to get this long view, yeah, to really, you know, keep some kind of to keep your sea legs under you, basically, to keep from getting, you know, uh, seasick, yeah, because all the changes going on, it's been all. You got to take a long view of this stuff, and a lot of people, a lot of the conditions that we're facing is that not only are we going through it, but we're also being denied the educational and intellectual resources we need to understand what's going on. Yes. So I think it really helps kind of the way that you're, you're breaking it down, G. Yeah, I think the long view, like, you know, part of what we're talking about is things that I saw growing up and I sort of was paying attention as a youngster, you know, 10, 12 years old, I was watching what's happening. And it's also a wide view, you know, like the ways that the, the, they, change regimes and governments in other parts of the world and influence elections 
you see that playing out right now here in the U.S. You know, they're the, the like you say the playbook, the playbook. They're not really creative with it. They keep on doing the same things over and over again. And for us, it's just a matter of how much are we going to pay attention, and then you know how much are we going to demand uh, that those people that are supposed to be leaders actually tell the truth about what's going on. Because the danger. Like Roger Freeman, who was the advisor to uh, to uh, Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California and advisor to Nixon, also he was a he was a conservative economist who worked at the Hoover Institution. That also gave rise to a lot of black conservative voices. Right? right. Roger Freeman said, "We are in danger of producing an educated proletariat." Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, leave that for people to think about. An educated, educated proletariat that is dynamite. That's that's something to think about right there.